In uh, 1998, 21-year-old Philip Walsham was murdered and his body dumped under a footbridge in Perth's northern suburbs. As a result of police investigations, three men were charged, convicted and sentenced for his murder. Although I don't know if you heard last month, though, that all three men last month were set free when their guilty verdict was overturned by Western Australia's Supreme Court. Philip Walsh's dad was devastated. In the paper he said, The justice system is a farce. Twelve people can find someone guilty and then three judges overrule it. The acting director of public uh, prosecutions had this to say about the case. Despite the community's expectation that our criminal justice system can deliver justice, the reality is that despite the best efforts of the police and the prosecution, this is not always possible. That is a jarringly honest statement. Despite the expectation that our justice system can deliver justice, this is not always possible. In other words, the sad fact of this world is that justice doesn't always happen. Without even going into the details of whether these three previously convicted blokes were guilty or not, they may well have been innocent. But the bottom line is, someone was murdered and no one has been punished. Where's the justice in that? Now, friends, maybe you get a sense of this on a personal level in your own life. Hopefully not to the tragic extent that poor old Philip Walsh's family do, but maybe your house has been broken into. Maybe you've had a car stolen. Perhaps you've had some of your stuff taken and it's never been found and the culprit's never been caught. Maybe the culprit has been caught and nothing has ever happened to them. Maybe you've been involved in a legal argument which has been so drawn out and so delayed and it was going to cost you so much money that it just wasn't worth it, so you dropped it, even though justice wasn't done. Maybe the boss or maybe a teacher has just gotten things wrong and you have gotten into trouble over something that you had nothing to do with and you have been left thinking, heck, that is just not fair. Where is the justice around here? Now, if you've ever experienced anything remotely like that, you'll be able to relate to our passage from Malachi this morning. It's a passage which taps into the elusiveness of justice in this world, and it's a passage which points us to what God has done about it. And it's especially in that last aspect of what God has done about it that the passage has some wonderfully comforting lessons for us. More of that later, though. Let's firstly think about how the passage fits together, because it is quite a long passage this morning, isn't it? Certainly compared to the other sections we've looked at in Malachi. And at first it seems as if there's lots of unrelated ideas, but they all hang together because what we've got before us this morning is effectively a two-way discussion between God and Israel. And I've tried to reflect this sort of two-way dynamic to the conversation uh, in the outline by using speech bubbles to show who's saying what. And look, the, uh, the careful reader will notice that it's not quite worked that way because in, it's actually technically God who speaks all the time. Uh, the quotes from Israel are in fact God uh, in turn saying what Israel say, but that's a minor technicality. The passage effectively works as a two-way discussion. 
and it kicks off with an accusation from Israel about where's the justice in this world. Chapter 2, verse 17. You've wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Where's the God of justice? In those verses, Israel are noticing what we notice in our newspapers. Justice doesn't always happen. And from that, they are casting doubt onto God's integrity. They are implying that God is corrupt because if you look around the world, evil people get away with stuff, innocent people suffer, and so Israel is saying it doesn't pay to follow God. What does it matter? It's not as if God's doing anything about it. All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, nothing ever happens to people who do the wrong thing. God's obviously not interested in justice. I was reading the other day about a bloke named Michael Durant. He's a 31-year-old bus driver, lives in New York City. And one day on the way to his work, uh, Michael stopped to give assistance at a car accident. He actually dragged a, a trapped person from a burning car. Now, all this drama actually meant that he was 12 minutes late for work, for which he was docked a day's pay. Does that seem fair? And so this newspaper article is all about the fact that it just doesn't pay to be a good Samaritan. Life is unfair. Good people finish last. And Israel, you see, they're pointing to incidents like that in the newspaper and they're they're saying, there you see, it ain't right. Where's the God of justice? What's he doing about that sort of stuff? Well, Well, God tells them. Chapter 3, verse 1. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. Now, friends, ever since almost the very first verse of Malachi, what we have been seeing is that when it comes to God, Israel have virtually no idea who it is that they're dealing with. At almost every step of the way, have we not been seeing that they have consistently underestimated the greatness of God? They have underestimated the greatness of his love. They've underestimated the greatness of his authority. They've underestimated the greatness of his faithfulness. And here in this last section, they have completely and utterly underestimated the greatness of his justice. They want God to come in justice. God effectively says, well, I'm coming and you can't handle it when I'll get there. For when my justice comes, it will be complete and utter. When my justice comes, I will leave nothing unjudged. I will leave nothing unpunished. Like a refiner's fire, which burns off every single impurity. Like a launderer's soap, which is heavy duty. It is going to remove every minute stain. When God comes in justice, no, no sin, no matter how small we may think it is, nothing is going to be left unjudged. And so who's going to be able to endure that sort of day? For such is the greatness of of God's sense of justice, that it's not just going to be the people whom we think deserve to be punished that God will punish. He's going to punish everyone who has ever done anything wrong. And friends, that's all of us. Gosh, suddenly God coming in justice doesn't seem like a good idea, does it? 
And so here in Malachi, God calls on Israel to brace herself and to get ready for this justice that's going to come. Verse 7, for example. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. It's a very lovely thing which God is doing in that those, those last verses. Not only is he saying that uh, if they return to him, he'll return to them, but he, even the very fact that he's telling them to get ready. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, he talks about this messenger who's going to come ahead of the day. Uh, hold that in your mind. We're going to return to that at the end of the passage. But more the point here, God is not interested in a surprise visit. He's not just interested in trying to trick as many people as he can. It's not like musical chairs where you flick the music off as fast as you can to trick, to trick people. God just wants people to come back to him. God wants Israel to survive his day of justice. But the signs aren't good. Look at Israel's comeback. Verse 7. Return to me. I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, well, how are we to return? It sounds as if Israel are so far gone that they don't even know how to begin to get back to God. They are so blinded by sin that they can't even think of the ways that they need to change. And you can almost sense God rolling his eyes in frustration. And yet again, patiently, lovingly, he helps them out by telling them what they've got to do where they've been going wrong. And in particular, he mentions two specific things which they need to stop doing. They need to stop robbing him and they need to stop saying harsh things about him. Firstly, it's the robbing bit. Verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? Again, this oblivion that they're doing anything wrong. In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storeroom, that there may be food in my house. See, Israel are not giving God the tithe that was required to be given under the Mosaic law. We're not under that law anymore, so we're not under the law of tithing. But in the Old Testament, they need, Israel were called on to give one-tenth of everything they had to God. But they're holding back. They're keeping it for themselves. And in many ways, it's got to do with what we saw a few weeks back. Uh, they're failing to give God the best of things in their life. They're just giving him the scraps. But as well as dishonouring God in thinking that he doesn't deserve it, it also shows that they don't trust him either. See, they think that maybe if they give stuff to God, there won't be enough left for them, that God will let them down. God says, I won't do that at all. Look at verse 10. Test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so many blessings that you'll not have enough room enough for them. I will prevent best from devouring your crops and I'll prevent the vines in your fields from casting down their fruit. See, God's basically calling on Israel to trust him, isn't he? Stop shortchanging me. Stop withholding from me because you think that somehow I'm going to let you down. Stop robbing me and just start to trust me. And if you do it, I will pour out so many blessings on you, you won't have enough room to fit them all in. But it's not just starting to trust God that Israel need to do. They need to start honouring him as well because they're saying harsh things about him. Verse 13. You've said harsh things against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Again, it's this complete oblivion that anything's wrong. 
you have said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his commandments and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed, certainly the evildoers prosper, and even those who challenge God escape. Those verses sort of back to where we started at the beginning of this section, aren't they? That, that uh, people who do the wrong thing and don't follow God, they seem to be doing all right for themselves. Uh, they seem to have nice homes and cars. They seem to be happy and well-balanced. Forget this God stuff. It, it, it's not worth it. Evil doers prosper. Which is, of course, an incredibly demeaning uh, uh, attitude to God. You know, it's the attitude that we only follow him because of what we get out of it. That's an insult. What parent would feel happy if that's how their children felt towards them? No, no, God calls on us to follow him just because he's God. And what we all may or may not get out of life as a result of following God, in one sense that's irrelevant. Simply by virtue of who God is, obligates us to revere him and fear him. And as God goes on, it is those people who do revere him and fear him, they're the ones that he's going to listen to and protect when his justice falls. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard them. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. They'll be mine, says the Lord Almighty. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. Friends, you're starting to get a handle on how the passage fits together. Israel want God to come and judge sin. Israel want God to come and bring in justice. God's response is, you have no idea what you're asking for. The greatness of my justice is that no one will escape its scrutiny. So you better stop robbing me and start trusting me. You better stop saying harsh things about me and you better start honouring me. For it is only those who fear and revere me that will be my people. Chapter 4, verse 1. For surely the day is coming, it'll burn like a furnace. Or the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who do revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Verse 5, see I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day that the Lord, of the Lord's coming. And friends, it, was with, it is with those words that the curtain falls on the Old Testament. The curtain of the Old Testament falls with words of warning to Israel to get their act together. God's coming one day. And they are words full of foreboding, but they are also words full of love. Because notice again that that God's not into a surprise visit here to just try and trick as many people as possible. He just wants them to come back to him. And so he warns them to get ready. It's like when you're driving on the highway. You know, every now and then on the highway you get those signs that say there's a speed camera camera coming up. And they actually tell you how many metres to go before you get to this speed camera because they just want you to slow down. That's God warning Israel, saying there in verse 5 that he's putting up a warning sign beside the rain to tell them to slow down because there is a camera coming. And in chapter 3, 1 and 4, 5 there, he's saying he's going to send a messenger ahead of them so that they'll know when the time is getting really close. 
the person is said here to be Elijah the prophet, sent to call Israel back to God, sent to tell them to start trusting and fearing him, sent to tell them that the day of God's visit is just around the corner. And you know what, friends? Even with that warning, this is the last words of the Old Testament, yet even with those words ringing in their ears, Israel still don't get it. And so when you turn to the New Testament, what you discover is that Israel goes sailing past the warning sign and they don't slow down one little bit. If anything, they speed up. In Mark's Gospel, John the Baptist appears in Jerusalem dressed like Elijah from the Old Testament. And Mark's gospel quotes Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 just to make sure that no one misses the point. God's messenger has arrived. Guys, the early warning system has gone off. And surprise, surprise, John the Baptist calls on Israel to repent, to get ready because God's coming soon. Hey, he's coming in the form of his own son. And to Israel heed the warning? John the Baptist, they behead. Jesus Christ, unbelievably, they crucify. And at that moment, Israel have pushed it too far. And as Malachi forewarns, it happens. Justice comes to Israel and as a nation, they are rejected for they are found wanting. And from the cross onwards, no longer will anyone ever have to be an Israelite again in order to be one of God's people. And it is a mind-numbingly tragic moment in history. What Israel could have been, what they turned out to be, it drove Jesus to tears. And yet such is the love and genius of God that even the failure of Israel could not quench his desire to save people. Because remember all through this, God wants people to survive his justice. He just wants people to return to him and to revere him. And in a stroke of absolute genius, at the death of Jesus, in the very same act that brings judgment to Israel as a nation, in that very same act, God uses it to also bring forgiveness to men and women now of any nation who would just turn back to God and trust him and revere him. That is because, of course, when Jesus died on the cross, he sacrificed himself in the place of those who returned to God. That when people do what Israel failed to do, when people return to God and trust him and revere him, when people do that, forgiveness is poured out onto them. And it masterfully comes about because God satisfies both his sense of justice and his sense of love. Both are are satisfied at the cross. And all the things that we've done wrong and which justice demands that we ought to be punished for, They are punished for at the cross through Jesus in a most remarkable act of love. 
And friends, can you see that when that happens, when you take refuge in Jesus on our behalf, when, when God's just, justice is satisfied at the cross on our behalf, then suddenly the greatness of God's justice becomes something to rejoice in rather than something to be feared. Because suddenly God's justice is something that you don't have to run away from. It's something you can actually look forward to. That there will be a day when everyone will have to stand before God and doing the right thing will be seen to be vindicated. And we don't have to fear that day when you are safe in Christ. In fact, look, this, this whole thing is pretty much true of everything we've seen of God all the way through Malachi. Think about where we've gone. The sovereignty of God's love. The scope of God's authority, the scale of God's faithfulness, and now the scrutiny of his justice. Every single one of those things about God are terrifying if you are on the wrong side of them. But at the cross, Jesus puts us on the right side of all of them. It's a bit like last Christmas holidays. We had a few days uh, as a family down on the south coast of New South Wales, which I always really loved that part of New South Wales. I, I was really looking forward to it down there around Wollongong and uh, Kiama. I love the scenery. If you've been down there, you'll know what it's like. You get th- these massive cliffs and mountains, the escarpment that just sort of vertically rises straight up out of the coastal plain. And you've got these really steep uh, mountain passes, Kangaroo Pass, Bulipa. It's just spectacular. But a funny thing happened this last time we were down there because the last time we were down there was actually the first time we had been there with our old camper trailer. And that had a profound effect on me because, you see, every time now I looked at those steep mountains, my first thought wasn't how spectacular they were. My first thought was, how the heck are we going to drag the camper trailer over them? They are way too big. And totally my perspective was flipped. Now, friends, that is what it is with the greatness of God. For if you are here this morning and you are dragging a load of sin behind you, then the holiness of God and the justice of God and the righteousness of God and the greatness of God, that is a very daunting thing. How am I going to be able to endure him? But if you have unhitched your sin and left it at the cross, suddenly the greatness of God is to be marvelled at and praised over and enjoyed and longed for. For in Christ we are safe. As God describes it in Malachi, they'll be mine. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I'll spare them. Just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. The son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. And friends, it all happens because of Jesus Christ and his death for us. That's why we praise him. That's why we sing about him. That's why we live for him. I'll pray. Father, thank you that you are a God of justice. 
and that there will come a day when evil is punished and everyone will have to give an account before you and that such is the scrutiny of your justice that everything will be judged and done rightly, that doing the right will be vindicated. But, Father, thank you that you are also a God of love and that you have made it possible for us to take refuge in the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the safety and the security that we find there. And so as your people, we marvel at your greatness and we long for it to become in full. Amen.